1: Greetings, geeks, and welcome to a special installment of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Today, we have a very, very interesting thing to talk about. We're here to talk about one of the most legendary movies in the Marvel Universe canon. Why is it so legendary? Well, it's based on the first ever Marvel comic. It was one of the early Marvel movies, and as of today, it has never seen an official release. We're speaking, of course, about the 1994 Fantastic Four movie directed by Ole, S- is it S- Sassoon or S- Sasson? Sassoon. yes. And produced by Roger Corman. Infamous friend of the show, pal of mine, Stephen Cipelas, who brought this film to me. Stephen, how are you tonight?
2: I am, in a word, Fantastic. <laughs> I am so excited to be talking about this movie. I don't want to bury the lead here, but I'm gonna start with the lead. This is my favorite Marvel movie. This might be my favorite Marvel thing ever. In the entire canon of Marvel, nothing has topped my love for Corman's Fantastic Four. Really? I, I am just so thrilled to be here.
1: Let's see, all right, gotta get by. You better love this movie. I have lots of thoughts and feelings, and we'll we'll go in. We'll dive deep into it. Okay, good. Um, I was built for this. <laughs> I have so many props
2: too. Do you really? You got this. You got yeah. this. There's
1: a Blu-ray. Don't, show me, Don't show me anymore. Don't show okay. me anymore. I, 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 okay. I want to be surprised. All right, all right, all right. This Let's talk about that. This. This. this is fascinating. So, I have a lot to say about this movie, but. I'm going to save it for once we get into the actual part of the movie. So we'll dive into it. Cause I have a lot to say and I'm sure you have a lot to say as well. And I fully expect us to go potentially I'm predicting four hours in this podcast. So we might break this into like a Snyder cut version of the show we drop an hour a week for a couple of weeks and, um, yeah, there's also a documentary about this movie, which we're going to discuss as well. Just yes, super there exciting. is. And it's great. Oh, sorry. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm just saying everything. I just love it, so.
2: I have no negative thing to say.
1: He's not biased at all for this film. <laughs> <laughs> With me this evening is, uh, fi- fittingly, the two guys from Long Island. Our story starts on Long Island, specifically, on the Woodmere Golf Course, where DC Comics publisher Martin Leibowitz was playing a couple of rounds with Marvel publisher Martin Goodman. Leibowitz was bragging to, to Goodman about the sales of his new book, The Justice League. So Goodman went to Marvel editor Stan Lee and introduced him to create a knockoff version as legend would have it, at this point, Stan was ready to quit the comic industry altogether. So his wife suggested he go for broke and tell the story he wanted to tell.
0: So I really wanted to quit and try something else. And I remember Joan said to me, you know, Stan, if you wanna quit, before you do, why don't you do one book the way you would like to do it? The worst that happens is Martin will fire you, and so what? You want to quit anyway. So coincidentally, at that time, he had found out that our competitor DC Comics, which called itself National Comics in those days, they had done a book called The Justice League of America, a group of superheroes, and it was selling very well. And he said to me, Stan, why don't you do a book about a group of superheroes? So I figured this is my chance to do it my way. So I came up with something I called the Fantastic Four, about four superheroes. But instead of making them heroes who wore costumes, I figured I'm not gonna give them costumes. Because I always felt if I had a superpower, why would I want to put on a costume? First of all, I'm too much of a show off. I'd want everybody to know it's me. I would never wear a mask. (laughs) And why would I need a costume? If I could jump over a building, I don't have to wear a colorful costume. I'll just jump over the building. At any rate, I didn't give them costumes, and I tried to make them real characters living in the real world. To quote Stanley,
1: for just once, I would do the type of story I myself would enjoy reading. And the characters would be the kind of characters I could personally relate to they'd be fresh and bold. You wrote flesh fresh. and blood. Oh, flesh and blood. I'm yeah, sorry. It's okay. I, I can't read folks. So <laughs> it, it, they'd be f- flesh and blood. They'd have their faults and, what does it say? F- Foibles? Foibles? Yeah. Okay, Stanley, all right. Um, they'd be fallible and feisty, and most important of all, inside their colorful costumes booty bootied wait wait inside their colorful colorful costumed booties they'd still have feet of clay
2: he he was someone who liked the english language quite a bit yeah i think he also liked the lsd as well (laughs) (laughs) well if you if you read any of like you know the 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 original issues of the marvel
3: Mm -hmm. comics
2: and you read you know stan's soapbox or any of his of his uh you know, bullpen stuff. It's all
1: this kind of flowery language. Wow, interesting. It's a lot of fun. I, I, I haven't, I mean, I haven't read a lot of early, early Marvel stuff just because it's like, it's so hard to go back and like, I don't, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but whatever. Um, they are very much based on Stan's personal life. Invisible Woman was modeled after his wife, Joan. Jack Kirby is Ben. Ben Grimm, obviously.
2: Yeah, and Stan, um, Stan thought of himself as Mr. Fantastic.
1: Of course he did. Course. It was kind of based on him. Uh, the smartest person in the universe. In the room, obviously. yeah, obviously, of course. Um, do you want to talk about the, some of the background of uh, the Fantastic Four? Sure, so it debuted in November
2: of 1961. Uh, and the first 100 issues are kind of considered the premier Stan Lee, Jack Kirby collaboration uh this is what kicked off the marvel age of comics there'd be no iron man thor x-men or spider-man without the fantastic four i believe that i believe that and so now let me ask you a question there michael were you a fan of the fantastic four growing up
1: you know what i i remember the cartoon there was like a it was a short-lived cartoon show Mm -hmm. and and i really did enjoy that um I've always had mixed feelings about Reed Richards. I, I, when I was younger, I didn't really understand the thing all that much. I always kind of thought he was more or less a a knockoff Hulk as opposed to the the other way around. Um, I've always been a fan of the invisible woman because who doesn't love the idea of being able to go invisible and like go through walls and, and all that kind of stuff. I thought that was just you know one of my favorite things. Like as a kid, you're like, oh man, I just wish I could be invisible and I could you know be a fly on the wall, so to speak. And you know, an R-rated movie. I want to be an invisible <laughs> woman and, and go into the room and see the movie kind of thing. <laughs> like Scott Bayo. Yeah. In, uh, in Zapped. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: The, this was my favorite comic book uh, growing up. My favorite Marvel comic book was Fantastic Four. It was the first comic book I ever had a, had a subscription to. Really? And, yeah. And from like 92 to 95, I was like picking up every issue. So when this movie, the word of this movie dropped, I was so primed for this. Um, and around this time, they were doing the, the Death of Reed Richards storyline.
1: I don't know if you remember that one. I, I don't. I didn't know that he had, you know, died at one point. I mean, I know he has died a few times, but I didn't know there was one that early.
2: Yeah, it was, it was kind of the Ralph, the Ralph Macchio run and they killed off Reed Richards and Dr. Doom. Wait, and Ralph Macchio, Karate Kid, or? No, the, the, the writer, the writer. It's Ralph
1: Macchio. It's spelled oh. the
2: same, but he pronounces it differently.
1: Gotcha. You know, Ralph Macchio is from Long Island, too. That's why I was kind of like, hmm. Well,
2: he's, he's the king of Long Island, and that if is? you go to any pizzeria, there's an autographed photo of Ralph Macchio or Steve Gutenberg or Jerry Seinfeld. Oh, <laughs> well, yes. True. That is true. Ralph Macchio, the king of Long Island. Oh, Ralph Macchio, the king of Long Island. <laughs> Ralph Macchio, the Fantastic Four uh, writer. <laughs> yeah, but like I was, I was so into it at this point. Um, and, and Mr. Fantastic is my favorite Marvel character. Really? Just love him. I just love him. I, I love any character that's super Pampus? intelligent. Pompous? <laughs> I, love Pomp- I love Pompous. Uh, I, and yeah, like... There's just something about Mr. Fantastic where as a kid, I just thought he was the coolest human being, you know,
1: Interesting. got a
2: beautiful wife. He, he <laughs> turned his best friend into a rock man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the world looks up to him as like, you know, the, the smartest guy who can do anything uh, and he can stretch.
1: He can stretch any part of his body. Yeah. Oh, fair enough. Touché. <laughs> um, so let's, you know, Theatrically, there was only really one Marvel movie, which was Howard the Duck. Uh, there had been a couple of other things like The Incredible Hulk, the Doctor Strange TV show, uh, TV movies, you know, Captain America was released theatrically internationally, um, as was The Punisher, but were direct to video in America. Uh, None of them really had that great of a reputation, though. You know, I do like the you know direct TV like uh, Spider-Man movies, like the you know the, the Chinese Web and the whatever the first one was called. Was it was just called the Amazing Spider-Man. I forget what it was called. Yeah, the pilot. I believe I believe that's what it was called. Yeah,
2: something similar.
1: Yeah, uh, but you know the movies oftentimes were kind of dark, you know, other than the Spider-Man films, and they were not kid friendly. Can you tell us, like, the origin of this Fantastic Four movie that we're, uh, we're going to dive into?
2: Yes. So, you know, throughout the 70s and 80s, Marvel was just kind of selling off their properties piecemeal for, you know, bargain basement prices. Right. Uh, and, and a German producer named Bernd Eichinger uh, purchased the rights to Fantastic Four in the 1980s for $250,000. Wow. So that low, that's how, that's how little they were valuing it for. Uh, and so, you know, basically this movie went into production because his rights were going to expire in one year and he needed to make the movie in order to retain the rights. Hmm. So he started shopping it around and he started shopping it around to really low budget producers, including Lloyd Kaufman, who famously uh, runs Troma films. And at the time, their, their big thing was Toxic Avengers. So they were right. kind of in the superhero realm. If you like Troma, I think it's disgusting. Yeah. And he ended up uh, getting in touch with his friend Roger Corman. So I'm sure you know who Roger Corman is, Michael.
1: Uh,
2: as a film person.
1: Yes. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a big fan of any Roger Corman films per se, but you know, he's a name that you always hear in film school, and you know, he was synonymous of you know low budget films, basically. Yeah, little- he was
2: kind of the, the, the king of the drive-ins. Yeah. You know
1: you know like he he made biker flicks
2: and women in prison movies naughty nurse movies (laughs) the edgar Allan poe movies but at this point in his career he was more or less only doing direct-to-video he had just directed his first movie i think in something like 20 years called frankenstein unbound oh yeah yeah but his main production company was doing direct-to-video movies okay
1: i forgot all about that i see this is what happens you know (laughs) like man you know once you get older, your brain kind of like things just fall apart, but you know the the production on this film is is like legendary in its kind of its drama behind it right like so they they yes. started yeah, so they started shooting it on december twenty eighth in of ninety two kind of like in a rush, like people were like really, really weirded out by like why it was like such a hurry to get this film shot and it continued into January of ninety three, shot at the last possible second in order to retain the rights. Scripted by Craig J. Is it uh Nevius? Nevius, yeah. Yeah. And Kevin Rock. What a cool name is Kevin Rock. Yeah. Um (laughs) so Nevius got the job because he wrote a Corman movie called Step Monster, uh, which had a ton of comic book references and went on to write the black scorpion tv series i had never heard of the black scorpion tv series. oh man it was very much uh
2: kind of ripping off the adam west batman but in like a seedy silk stockings 90s kind of way really? like an Episode where adam west plays the villain no kidding i believe it's on amazon prime you can you can check it out but it's it, jones Severins playing kind of a scantily clad uh <laughs> superhero that's pretty
1: interesting. Uh, it's
2: it's worth checking out
1: sort of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Sometimes some of the recommendations you gave me I, <laughs> I wonder. Um the budget of the film was somewhere between 1 and 2 million dollars, which was actually a fairly large budget for a Roger Corman production, but not so much for a major superhero movie.
2: Yeah, and and kind of the the reason the budget discrepancy is so large Is because Roger Corman was loaning out, you know, his studio space, his editors who were on staff, um, you know, stock footage that he had, props that he had. So it's kind of somewhere
1: in that realm of one and two million, based on everything you read. Speaking of that, you know, I I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I learned in the documentary that a lot of the sets were the exact same sets as Carnosaur, just kind of like repainted. (laughs) Yep. Yeah, (laughs) that's pretty interesting.
2: Not only that, but there's a Roger Corman movie called The Trip from the 1960s, you know, with with all those guys, Peter Fonda. Mm -hmm. uh, And they use stock footage from the trip in the outer space sequence when they get blasted by the cosmic rays. That's like 25 year old footage. Really? Of people tripping out and seeing
1: things (laughs) from that movie, The Trip. Wow. The whole film was shot in 18 days, which is, if you know anything about film, normally a film is shot a page a day if you're doing a feature length film. So if it's 90 pages, 90 days, you know, something like that. Some more like independent films, they might shoot it in like 30 days or, you know, or 60 days but for a major motion picture, generally speaking, it's like they shoot one page per day in a production. So to shoot the whole movie in 18 days is Herculean, to say the least. <laughs> uh, according to Sassoon, it was shot mostly on short end film stock. Do you want to explain what short end film stock is?
2: Yeah, so basically, you know, when you used to shoot on film, a reel was about 10 minutes long. Right. And at a certain point, you know, you're getting towards the end of the reel and you're thinking, oh gosh, I'm not gonna be able to film what I need to film in like a minute or 30 seconds or whatever's left. So you would not use that part. You would not expose it and you would save it for later. And so this is all the leftovers (laughs) that they were shooting it on. And they weren't even using full film reels. They were using
1: leftovers. It's funny because if you've ever seen Fight Club, There's a scene in Fight Club where Tyler Durden is like in a movie projector room, Mm -hmm. and he's inserting, you know, pornographic clips into film, and he and he points out the cigarette burn that pops up in the corner. And I saw several times in this movie, you could literally see the cigarette burn pop off, which is when what what that means is they're basically taping the film together, and, and there's a little boop that's what happens from from like a a piece of tape in the corner before it was edited digitally.
2: Yep. Yeah. Yeah. On all these bootlegs, you can see that that cigarette burn. And sometimes when you watch, you know, older movies, if it's a bad print, you can still see the cigarette burn in it.
1: Yeah. Um, It was filmed in Roger Corman's crappy studio in Venice, which I find very interesting. That's pretty cool. But it's not Venice, Italy. It's Venice, (laughs) California. and, so from what I heard was this studio was, was rough. They were dealing with rats all the time and all kinds of other, you know, weird issues where the actors, when they pulled up to the studio, were like, this is it? Like, this is where we're filming this thing?
3: Yikes. So
2: just an aside here, you lived in Los Angeles. Did you ever encounter anything like this, this
1: kind of low rent studio? I mean, there's a lot of weird things like on the sunset or just like off the sunset strip that you'll find some weird little, Oh, this is where we're having our production of our commercial today or this. And you're just like, uh, am I going to make it out of here? Am I going home tonight? <laughs> it's like a, something out of saw you'll see sometimes. Yes.
2: I, I worked in a show called the deadliest warrior. I can reveal the story now. Sure. And it was shot at a terrible, terrible studio. I think in like downtown Los Angeles. And there was one day where they had me fill up the trunk of my car with ancient weapons like axes and swords. And they weren't protected at all. They were just like dumped in the trunk of my car. Oh, good. (laughs) And on the drive, I'm thinking if I get into a car accident and I just, and they find me and I'm just, there's swords and axes and (laughs) maces through me. What are they gonna think happened here? Yikes. Like what a mystery for the for the officer on the scene of the crime who's just like, what the hell happened to this poor guy?
1: call the corner. We got a weird
2: one here. We got a human shish kebab. That's on the freeway. Oh boy, oh LA. Oh, what a weird place. It's a weird place. And and when you when you hear like the stories in in that documentary and you've lived in Los Angeles, it's just it's such a connection.
1: Yeah. Like okay. So Notoriously, Stan Lee himself disowned the film, even though apparently he made several trips to to the filming of the of the movie and seemed very positive about it during the production. But publicly, he he shunned the movie and said it doesn't exist. It'll never see the light of day. Yada yada yada. That's true. Yeah, and and
2: and we'll get to it. But later on, he even said that it was never meant. For release which i think was something that i i, I don't know how true
1: that is but we'll, we'll get to that yeah it's um it's interesting to say the least i um i i have a question for you and, yes. I, and I'll, I'll share my feedback is what did you think of the directing of the movie i think that given what ole
2: Sassoon had to work with which we just described, 18 days, short end film stocks, repainted sets, uh, that it's really good.
1: I'll, I'll be honest with you. So I, knowing the budget being what it was, it looks like it was shot to be a made-for-TV movie. Mm-hmm. And not to say that's bad, because like, it's shot... Obviously, I saw it, if you guys want to find it, it's on a website called Daily Motion. And we'll post that on, our, on the wizard social and so on and so forth. So you can find it. And um, it's shot like a, what you would see the Captain America movie look like or the Spider-Man movies or even the Incredible Hulk. Yes, it's a very dirty, low-grade version because what you see online was dubbed from a VHS over VHS over whatever. You know, it's not a crisp, clean copy. But that being said it doesn't look terrible i mean like if you had to equate it to anything a student film you know uh, you know maybe a, a, a maybe a little bit a step above a student film it, just the, by the look of the the sets and everything like if you if you had a nyu student with a significant budget you could put something similar to this out overall well you know to his credit i think
2: you know, he moves the camera a lot. This is not a stag, like a still no, movie. Yeah, there's a lot of moving camera. Yeah, and, and he, he gets really good performances
1: out of everyone, in my opinion, we'll get oh, to, to uh, that. I mean, every single character owns it. Like, mm-hmm. they really, really own the roles. Uh, other than, I, I kind of feel like the only complaint that I had was... I don't want to go too deep into it yet because we have a lot of time to cover the the girl who plays Sue Storm the woman who plays Sue Storm she comes off as too doting like she's just Mm -hmm. like she comes off very very uh, needy at times almost and that's not the Sue Storm that I envisioned Mm -hmm. but it could be the way that's Dan Lee wrote her originally early on. And, I, and it, it, this movie feels the most comic book movie I've ever seen. Yes,
2: I'd agree with that. 100%. A, a couple points there. Um, there's so much to, to dissect with this movie. If you compare this to the other Corman movies that we're coming at at this point, if you look at anything from, the, from this library, the New Horizons library, this is far and away better than any other movie Roger Corman was making at this point. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. And it shows because I think, and, you know, if you watch the documentary, if you read any interview with him, he really cared about the source material. And to your point about Sue Storm, he was basing it on those early uh, Lee and Kirby issues where she was basically that character. Right. Uh, that was their model for her.
1: That's kind of, I mean, it, every character feels very archetype, original, true to the sixties style of writing and comic books and that kind of stuff. It's not what you would think. Like if you're going looking in it with 2020 eyes, it's not that it's written like it's early sixties style storytelling of comic books. Definitely.
2: And, and it looks like, like if, if this had come out in 1967, if I told you that you would have hundred percent believed me when I showed it to you, it's, it's got that vibe to it. Yeah. Um,
1: so Ole was a comic book fan and he, he talks about it in the documentary, which you can find on Amazon prime also is called doomed. It's, it's very, very interesting that we'll be talking about it. He was also a Corman guy, which, what does that mean exactly? He was part of the stable of
2: direct to video uh, Corman directors, which is how he got this. It was just, you know, they had their, their staff of guys and him being a comic book fan, he, I guess, was first on the list. He had directed, if you want me to skip ahead <laughs> here. Yeah, sure. He, he had directed a corner movie called Blood Fist 3, Forced okay. to Fight.
1: <laughs>
2: and uh, Final Embrace. Blood Fist 3, obviously, classic, classic uh, prison break movie. Uh, So, yeah, he, he was kind of in that world. He directed a lot of direct-to-video 90s
1: movies. Interesting. So he he has a quote here where it says, we tried to do everything from like nothing existed after the first, like as far as we knew and what we based this on, there was no other comic except number one, which makes a lot of sense in the idea that these characters are written as if they are right out of the pages of the first issue of the fantastic four.
3: Mm -hmm. Makes a
1: ton, Ton and ton of sense. Um, He also goes on to say, we have to make this feel like it's more 60s than not. Again, you can totally see that in every aspect, even the costumes, the whole thing feels like it's right out of the 60s.
2: Yeah. And even on the audio commentary track, they say they tried to source furniture that looked like it was from the 1960s.
1: There's an audio commentary of this?
2: Michael, you're going to go
1: deep into the world. Dude, of. I'm going to have Fantastic to re-watch work. this just to watch the director's commentary. <laughs> oh boy. Oh boy. Oh wow. This is, it's, this is going to take six
2: years away from my life. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good commentary track. I'll say that for
1: it. I, I'm sure important. it is. I'm sure it is. So, um, let's dive into the cast here. Cause I have a lot of thoughts about the cast. Right? Okay, good, good. Okay. So, Alex Hyde White is Mr. Fantastic. Um, he's been in a ton of film and TV. Probably his best known performance is in The Last Crusade. When, he, when you just see his arm, uh, also, but no, notably, he has a role in Pretty Woman. He also... So pe- Go ahead. Do you, do
2: you remember him in Last Crusade? He plays the young Sean Connery at the beginning. Is that really him? That's really him. That opening sequence when River Phoenix runs in and he's like oh, "count from count to dead" in Greek. That's that's Alex Hyde arm.
1: No way. So yeah,
2: it's it, yeah. it. But he's like his back to him and everything. Like, yep. yeah, that that's probably his his biggest role up to this point. But Spielberg did work with him again later on in in Catch Me If You Can. Okay, he, he has a role I think as an, like an FBI agent in that movie. And I remember I was in theaters, packed house, and he shows up and I'm like, oh my God, it's Mr. Fantastic. No one knew what I was talking about, but I freaked out.
1: So I wanted to just just give you a heads up. In order to do this podcast, I had to pour myself a glass of wine. So I'll be occasionally (laughs) drinking wine while we're discussing this movie because I feel like I needed to have something because I was like, Oh, I want to just dive into this, and I wish I also had a, like a leather couch that I could sprawl out as we talk about this thing. A, <laughs> a little kind of... pipe that you can yeah. smoke, and mm. the bourbon jo- glass, jolly good. Um, he also appeared in the TV movie Captain America: Two, Death Too Soon, and an episode of Mantis. Interesting. Listen, he he looks like Reed Richards in this movie. Like he, he looked a lot like him. I really did not care for the way they did the white sideburns that well, like (laughs) they they look like they're, you know, either clip ons or something, but overall, like he does kind of exude Reed Richards in this, in this role. And he talks like how I would think Reed Richards would
2: talk. I agree with you. And when you watch the, like, you know, the later fantastic four movies, they came, they always portray Reed as this total nerd and everyone's always like, Oh, geez, Reed, you're going on and on about stuff. No one cares about. And in this movie, they treat him like with respect. He's their leader. Yeah. Yeah. Um, If you read the original Lee and Kirby comics, you know, Reed Richards is an alpha male. He's, he's the most, he's the George Clooney of the, of, the, of like the Marvel comics. He's Stan role. Lee, you know. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> He's <Stan> the, the, <laughs> even cooler than George Clooney. He's Stan <laughs> Lee. So, they never really got that right in the later movies, whereas in this one, I feel like they really nail that tone. Everyone looks at Reed with such reverence and respect, you know. Mm-hmm. You see him through Sue Storm's eyes and she just has a major crush on him.
1: Reed?
0: Hmm? I, um, well, I just wanted to say that, um, well, I and mean, whatever comes of this, I mean, even even if we don't recover. Or or or, or uh, if we get worse. Oh, I um something shouldn't go unsaid. God, why am I always so shy around you? What did you say? Well, I, I just want to. Susan, what tell you did you just say about being shy? It, this is a problem that I have sometimes. <laughs> that's it, I'm... Susan. That's it. You've got a problem with being shy, right? So you vanish, yes? <sighs> Johnny, you've always had a quick temper. Now, come on. Ever since I've known you, right? You could call it fiery. So what happens? I catch fire. Exactly. and me. I've always had this problem. I just stretch myself
1: thin all the time, trying to take care of everybody, trying to do everything at once. Too many things.
0: (laughs) Ben, you've always relied too much on brute strength when your intelligence would have sufficed. (sighs) Don't you see? Listen. We know one thing from the blood test. And that's that our DNA has been altered. But I think Colossus has touched our psyche. I think it's made us feel that our worst character defects
3: are in fact our greatest strengths. Holy Freud, Batman, I think you're right.
1: Speaking of Sue Storm, (laughs) um, is it pronounced Stabe or Stab? I think it's Stab. So it's Rebecca Stab plays the invisible woman and she's mostly a soap opera actress. And you can tell, you <laughs> can tell she acts this like a soap opera. Okay. Um, she did a few episodes of cheers and Seinfeld, which I found very interesting because I'm a big Seinfeld fan and mm-hmm. cheers. fan. Um, so I got to look they, up the episode she was on now. They, again, Like we said, this is based on the 60s version of the characters, but when she falls for Reed, she falls fast and hard. Like she's immediately in love with him. And here's the very strange thing about that. Early on in the beginning of the movie, we meet Sue Storm and Johnny Storm, and they are, let's say, 13 and 10 at the time and Reed and Ben are graduate students in college. So they're easily 10 plus years older and it's like, okay, how does that work? I don't fully get that. And then we'll get into it, but something happens and they fast forward 10 years later the only difference between Ben and Grimm is uh, Ben Grimm and Reed Richards is Reed has the white in his hair, but Sue storm and Johnny storm are 10 years older and they're adults.
2: Yeah. It's, it's one of those weird, it's a jump. Yeah. It's one of those weird things that they would do. Like when you watch Goodfellas and Joe Pesci is supposed to be like the kid. Yeah. Supposed to be 25 years old and, and he's 50 and he's Joe Pesci. <laughs> Yeah. you know, you're just you're like, why do they keep calling him the kid? This
1: guy's older than my dad. It it's one of those suspend disbelief kind of things, and you just yeah. gotta go with
2: it. Yeah, and then like you know, The Irishman when they de-aged De Niro, and he's yeah. supposed to be thirty, and he looks like he's sixty. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. So it, uh, it's one of those weird movie things, and like, it, it is a little weird that you know she's thirteen and she has a crush on Reed, but it's such like a chaste, innocent. Relationship in this movie, yeah. That, that I, I, you could, don't... I could see that. Yeah, it's it's very it's very family
1: film, Disney movie kind of thing. Yeah. So Jay Underwood plays the Human Torch. What is Jay Underwood best known for? I w- before the, so when this movie was announced,
2: um or when I heard about the trailer, I went on a deep dive Pre- pre-internet internet. and tried to find out every damn thing about this cast and what i knew jay underwood from was a, a movie called the boy who could fly which was on hmm. hbo like all the time in the late 80s okay I
1: don't so that's what that i one. knew him from he was also in a movie called uncle buck which is a Canyon fantastic movie. movie if you've never seen uncle buck go watch it he plays a character named bug <laughs> yes, which is kind does. of funny because he was in a movie called the boy who could fly
2: <laughs> yes, yes, I saw Uncle Buck in theaters. Did you uh, really? Yeah, wow. and it was very—it was not appropriate for an eight-year-old. There's no. a lot, of, no, it's a lot of sexy, sex stuff. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, with, my, with you know, with my mom and my younger brother, I'm like, I don't know if we should be <laughs> watching this. Uh, but he was also in uh, before this. He was in an episode of Superboy, where he played a kid who had fire powers. And really? then after this, he was on an episode of The X Files, where he plays a guy who has fire powers typecasting? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs>
1: Maybe. He was born to play the human torch, I, I suppose. Yeah, that's a little bizarro. So, this is where things get very interesting. The thing and Ben Grimm are played by two different people. So, Michael Bailey Smith plays Ben Grimm, but Carl Cifolo or Chifalo? You're, you're 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 Italian, you got to know this. <laughs> cheer follow cheer follow plays the thing and he's most notably a, a stunt man now the actor who plays and this is the weird thing when mm. i watch the movie i'm like michael bailey smith looks like a young kevin sorbo like he yeah. he's like super handsome, this long flowing blonde hair. And I'm like, you're going to put the the best looking guy in the movie in a giant rubber suit. And then I, lo and behold, I find out he's not even in the suit. No. So he has no. Re- relatively a small part in the movie in comparison to, the role he was actually cast for to play the thing, you know? It's
2: like weird. Yeah, yeah. And if you, wa- and if you watch the documentary, he is very bummed that he didn't get to be super in the costume.
1: Bummed. Like super, super bummed.
2: And it was mostly just a budgetary thing. They just built a suit around a stuntman just because it was in pre-production, who was noticeably shorter than Michael Smith.
1: Noticeably shorter. It's really funny how they do that too.
2: Yeah. So, but he, he's also the voice of the thing.
1: But it's but it's like you know reverbed or like yeah, There's some sort of like voice modulation. I see you you can't fully tell that it's his voice because it's got like the thing grizzle to it more or less. Yes, it does. Yes. Now,
2: go ahead. What were you going to say? I was going to ask, what did you think of the thing costume, which was built
1: by a, a company called Optic Nerve? I didn't hate it at all. <laughs> I, I I thought it was fine. I mean, the
2: glowing review.
1: Th- there, there are. Moments where it's not great, but then when I watched the documentary and so saw the behind-the-scenes of how they built this like helmet on the guy to make the animatronics of the mouth move, I was like, "Wow, they did that with like the low budget that they had. It was very impressive." And again, he moves like the thing. Uh, you know, I thought it was you know pretty clever. That you know, it looks good for, for what they had. It looked like a very good costume. It, yeah,
2: and to me, that is the best the Thing has looked on film. Yeah. I think the Michael Chiklis costume was awful. Yeah. And then the 2015 thing was just the worst thing I've ever seen in my entire life. That is the worst thing I've ever seen. It's awful. Put a pair of pants on, Thing. Yeah. Like, it, what are you doing? It's not good. The, the other funny thing that I wanted to mention about that Thing costume is, again, and we'll get to this as we, as we get to the release, but I was – in seventh grade, obsessed with this movie, and so bummed that it didn't come out. And there was one of those like um, shows on on NBC or ABC for kids about behind the scenes of the movie industry. And in the background of this, you know, effects studio, I saw the Thing head. They were interviewing somebody. Really, the Thing's head is just sitting like deep in the background, and I'm like freaking out. I'm like, oh my
3: god. It's
2: the things <laughs> it's head. there. It does exist. Yeah, and again, this is pre Google, pre you know, pre internet in everybody's house. So when you got a little piece of information like that, you were just your mind was blown.
1: That's pretty funny. That's interesting. so yeah.
2: That that thing had made it onto a TV show at some point.
1: So Joseph Culp plays Victor von Doom or or Victor, and then he you know becomes Doctor Doom. He is the son of Robert Culp of I Spy and The Greatest American Hero. Most recently, he was on Mad Men or Mad I'm sorry. I'm oh, sorry. Uh, no, it is Mad Men. It is that's Mad Men. That's my bad. Yes. Um, most recently, he was on Mad Men, where he plays Don Draper's father. Interesting. Wow.
2: Yes. Or Dick uh, Whitman's father. You know, like yeah. Don Draper
1: was yeah. somebody yeah. else. Right. Yeah, he's Don Draper. Yeah, no no matter what his identity really was, no one cares. It's he's Don (laughs) Draper. (laughs) He's Uh, in that famous episode,
2: like with the hobo code, where Dick Whitman is visited by a hobo, who like
1: marks the fence post.
3: Oh yeah.
1: Yeah, it's interesting.
3: He's good. He's good on it.
1: Yeah, Um, he is saddled with a mask that muffles much of his dialogue. Uh, It kind of reminds me of Dark Helmet. Combined with Frank Langella's Skeletor. And I agree. It's, it's absolutely like that. You know, it's, yeah. it's pretty funny. It's very uh, over the
2: top when, he, when uh, Victor becomes Doom. Like but, his his, his but, hands move around like crazy.
1: But if you've ever read a Fantastic Four comic book, Doctor Doom does kind of move like that. And, yeah. and say what you will the costume is right from the pages of the comic. Oh my God, it's, it's dead on. It's, it's,
0: it's completely dead, dead on.
1: on. Like, it's like they literally ripped a page out and they said, boom, make this. And yep. it is perfect. Like, I don't care what anybody says. It is spot on. Every other movie that has come since that have done a Doctor Doom costume is completely wrong. This was it, 100%. I'm so glad you're saying this because I I, a
2: thousand percent agree. This looks like um, the toy biz figure of Dr. Doom literally to life. Yeah. If you had that as a kid and you wanted to see this movie, you'd, you'd think, Oh my God, that's my toy.
1: Yeah. And they always try
2: to downplay him in the future movies and, and like make the metal part of some Body horror thing, and it it just never works. Just give the guy a metal mask and be done with it. Yeah, no, it's so
1: perfect. It's it's so perfect. Like it's like I said, it's as if they ripped out a page of the comic and said, "Make this." Period, and they did it. And that was one of the most impressive things about the movie is how accurate that costume was, and it blew me away. I I was not expecting that at all. And for most of the movie, he's kind of just shot in, you know, nothing behind him, like a literal black background and just like ang- different angles of the mask and just the way like he moves his eyes. It's right on. And I was really, really impressed by that. That's really awesome. impressed. Yeah, that was impressive. Um, so a guy named Ian Trigger plays the jeweler. Can you tell us a little backstory about this character and why this is in this movie?
2: So in the, in the original script, this character is just Mole Man, who is one of the more famous Fantastic Four villains. Yeah. He's in the first issue of Fantastic Four, which again, they were trying to kind of do that. Um, but at the time, the way they had sold off these characters was so piecemeal that although um, Bernd Eichinger owned the Fantastic Four and Doctor Doom, he did not own Mole Man. And Marvel, who did not want this movie to happen, who wanted to do a big budget Fantastic Four, get back the rights, didn't want to do him any favors and Mm -hmm. did not give him Mole Man. It's almost like um, the 70s Fantastic Four cartoon where they didn't have the rights to the Human Torch, so they made Herbie the Robot as the fourth (laughs) character. So they just basically created a knockoff Mole Man and named him the Jeweler. But to me, I thought he also had elements of the Puppet Master. Yes. Uh, specifically, like, in the way he kind of obsesses over Alicia oh, it's so creepy. It's so it's creepy.
1: creepy. Like, it, yeah. it, it's, it's a weird, like, B-plot in the movie, but once it kind of, like, pulls itself together, it, it makes more sense. I, mm-hmm. In a way, like, it's not the worst way I've ever seen something cut together that, that didn't make sense to me at first, but it kind of comes out of left field where he first pops up. But overall, it's pretty good. The I have one big complaint about it, but it's not a total deal breaker, so I'm not going to go into it yet. We'll talk about it later.
2: Okay. And just imagine Kat Green plays Alicia Masters, and I think she does a great job oh, uh, yeah. she,
1: in that role. She does a great job. She's <laughs> The only thing that I find weird about that is she So she's a sculptor. Is mm-hmm. she a sculptor in the 60s as well? Uh, that's a good
2: question. Yeah. Yeah, she is. So... If I'm wrong, please edit it out.
1: She, I, I, I'm going to leave it in, period, because I don't care, because it's fun. Flame on. She does this thing where she's kind of like... So, so obviously, you know, the character's blind in the comics. Yes. And, and so she's sculpting Ben Grimm's face by just kind of like what she... Felt for a moment, uh-huh. and it's it's very much like Lionel Richie's "Hello" kind of <laughs> a moment. It's really weird. And I'm like, I don't know how I feel about it fully, but it's fine. It's whatever. It's a little cheesy, but it's okay. I'm
2: it's like, cute. Uh, anyway. A note about Cat Green because I've listened to the audio commentary, you know, five times. Uh, her mom is a sculptor, so she took lessons from her mom on how to sculpt in the movie. That's how dedicated she was. Really? Playing that role.
1: Yes. So there's also a couple of other fairly recognizable faces that are in this movie. You want to tell us who they are?
2: Sure. Uh, so the, the first face you see in this movie is an actor named George Gaines, who everyone from our generation knows uh, from Punky Brewster mm-hmm. and from the Police Academy movies, obviously. Yes, obviously. Uh, C- Commandant lassard yeah. Uh, and he plays, he just has one scene. He plays the professor in the opening of the movie, and he's very over the top, but
1: but sells so him. much fun. So much fun. And I, I was bummed I didn't see him more in the movie. Yeah, he's, again, he's one of those people that I loved as a kid. He's so
2: funny in Police Academy. I loved Punky Brewster, and it's, it's, it's a good it's one, open.
1: It's one of those things where I thought, you know, he'd be sort of like Reed's mentor. And when Reed like reaches his like lowest point, he might go to the professor to like get guidance, but you never see him again in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was,
2: it's a bummer, but the way he moves that chalk against the board, like he's <laughs>
1: conducting an orchestra.
2: It's, it's a bummer. lot of fun.
1: Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Ricky Dean Logan from, Freddy's Dead, which I think was fully titled like Freddy's Dead, A New Nightmare, right? That was It called. was, uh, oh God, why? Yeah, no, Freddy's yeah. Dead, The Final Nightmare. The Final Nightmare, that's what it's called, yes, yes, yes. Um, And a movie that I don't know if I've ever heard of. Back to the Future 2? Oh, you just abbreviated I'm sorry, yeah, <laughs> that's my <not> bad. <laughs> like what the hell is B-T-T-F-2? I'm like, okay, is it like you have a- the lingo here? <laughs> <laughs> so he's also in back to the future too i might just leave that in because it's just so weird <laughs> he's one of griff's gang
2: oh yeah in back so, to the future too okay he's like hey mcfly you bozo those boards don't work on water <laughs> he's you know these guys. things how yeah. do you know these things how do you know them between you if that and- was also the first time i saw this and i was watching i'm like that's the guy from back to the future too uh, he, he plays the busboy in this movie who like has a scene with Thing and he just yells,
1: What are you, man? What are you? It's that guy. It's yeah, that that's... Guy. he just In the 80s, I guess he just got the, all the high-pitched actor roles. I, I guess so. I guess so. An actress named Mercedes McNabb, who was in Buffy, plays young Sue Storm. Yeah, she was also in the Adams family
2: movies, both of them. She's in the first one. She plays the Girl she's the, Scout. She's the annoying girl of the camp. Yes. That's yes. That's what two. I thought. I, I thought that was her. She looked familiar. Yep. Well, she's the one that says, I'll play the victim. And one day says, All your life. <laughs> yes, she she's great in this. She is great. She is again great. small role, but yeah. an actor Sells that it. was recognizable. Yeah. I've got the movie on in the background. The Ricky Dean Logan scene just popped
1: up. <laughs> really? That's pretty funny. So, two actors that I didn't know who they were, but play very significant roles in the movie, are Dr. Doom's henchmen, who technically also save him from the hospital and make him into Dr. Doom. Who are those guys? Uh, I, is that on the notes? It's not on the notes. That's why I'm curious. I... Like, Oh,
2: like who are, like, what are their real names? Do you know? They were, so there's a book called Forsaken. Okay. About the making of this movie. And there's a are, book for this movie too? Oh my God, I'm good. There's so much, there's so it's much. a book. Of course there's a book. Why would there not be? It's a really good book and, and uh, it's, it's kind of pricey on Amazon, but if you get it for your Kindle, I think it's like 10 bucks. I, I read it at the beginning of quarantine. It, it, <laughs> I, I picked it up and it was fantastic. I don't remember their names. But, but
1: they really, they're good too. And they're a lot of fun. They are.
2: They kind of remind me of, um, the Blues Brothers, the Blues Brothers. That's good. <laughs> but in, uh, in Super Mario Brothers, the movie, there's the Fisher Stevens character. Okay. Yeah. And the, oh God, why am I blanking on the other guy's name from, uh, Curtis Bueller's Spieler's Day Off and all that. Oh, Richard, Richard Edelson, who, oh, yeah. uh, okay. I see that. And they're kind of like, you know, like Koopa's, goofy henchmen yeah it kind of remind me of that there's actually a couple of things in this that remind me of super mario brothers the movie there's a few you know nods to it i or not nods
1: to it but a few similarities interesting interesting now there's a couple of notable actors that auditioned for the movie but did not get it you want to reveal who they were
2: yes they talk about this in the documentary there was mark ruffalo auditioned for dr Doom. Wow, how young was he then? He must have been must have young. Been, yeah, very young. And what a world we'd be living in right now if, uh, if the Hulk played Dr. Doom. The other big one was Patrick Warburton, who went on to play the Tick, auditioned for Ben Graham. Yeah. And then Marley Shelton you know, from The Sandlot, mm-hmm. uh, she auditioned for Invisible Woman. So there yeah. were a lot of big names that went up for these,
1: or future big names that went up for these roles and just didn't get it wow interesting that's pretty cool when i heard the mark ruffalo thing i was like whoa that's that's interesting and yeah he would have been great i think he would have been great too yeah so i'm sure he would have nailed it i'm sure he would have he's pretty good that ruffalo he's going places he does all right you know he's got a show on that hbo network now I heard it's pretty good yeah um so the score was by uh two guys named the worst brothers And but but it's the best score. (laughs) But it's an excellent it it almost feels like you know a Danny Elfman kind of a score.
2: It's it's big and they again they talk about this in the documentary. These guys, you know, paid out of pocket for a full orchestra. Yeah. Because they were so excited about this
1: movie. And they they worked on this thing. Like it's really well done. Like I was very impressed by the score. And again, I watched most of it on my phone. You know, and it still was really, really good. In the days before, you know, YouTube, where now you can just
2: go online and find the Worst Brothers score, you could pick up a CD of, of their score at comic book conventions. They were selling it. Of course they were. In the early <laughs> 2000s.
1: I did not buy it. I almost did a couple times, but. Uh, next. Next comic convention once once the world goes back to some sort of normal. I I'm, I'm gonna get a picture from you say,
0: like, I got the soundtrack!
1: I own it now! Oh <laughs> well, it's only a bit, it's only about 15 minutes
2: of music, which you yeah. pay 20 bucks for that. It's a it's a bit much, but it, it is a bit much.
1: I agree. <laughs> so now let we're gonna get into like the meat and potatoes. This movie never came out. Um there are some discrepancies about it. Some claim it was never meant to come out. It was made so that uh, Eichinger could retain the rights, which if you know anything about Hollywood, this is a thing that they do. Like Sony was almost going to lose the rights to Venom until they made the Venom movie. You know, it's one of those things.
2: It is. It's very... It's one of those things that's super strange. Yeah, um, because it was a known property; they did announce it in trade magazines. They put on the whole show to basically make it seem as though this thing were moving forward. There was coverage in magazines like Wizard, Comic Scene. It got the cover story in Film Threat. Yeah, um, which I have right next to me. I can hold it up. Sure. For the camera. Film
1: Threat Magazine. Yeah, I saw that picture on the actual documentary as well. Yep. Oh, and for those of you guys who are interested, we're going to release this on the YouTube channel after the podcast comes out, so you'll be able to watch us and relive this <laughs> if you would like to. <laughs> so it, it,
2: it's, it's strange because, you know, I've, I've heard both things, that, that Burned Eichinger... Or Never meant for this to come out, and like I said, was just trying to retain the rights. Thought a bigger studio would pay him uh, to just dump this movie, and then I've heard that it was going to be released, and that was the plan all along.
1: Yeah, and it's it's very interesting what how it comes about for why it's it's a little it's a, it's a weird mystery that. Even the documentary doesn't fully fully solve, but they yeah. reveal a lot of interesting nuances about it that I find very very fun and and it almost raises more questions, which is interesting
2: well, to that point, you know Roger Corman is one of the most notoriously cheap producers oh yeah I've, I've in heard film that history if you read uh, any of the or if you read Forsaken, they talk about it a lot, and he made two trailers for this movie. Really? Yes. There's two trailers for There's this movie? two trailers. Wow. And, 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 you know, we were talking earlier about the way this movie looks. If you watch, it's on YouTube and it's on the Blu-ray that I own. If you watch the 35 millimeter trailer, it looks great. I mean... Yeah, that's what they say. They say it looks fantastic. It, look, it looks fantastic. <laughs> of course it does. He made posters. They're there fantastic for posters. He made this... Promotional button that I have on my. How did you even find that eBay? Yeah. Uh, no, actually. So the guy who made Doomed, he wrote a book called The Doomed Journal.
3: <laughs> There's a
1: he wrote a book too
2: about oh the my... making of Doomed. <laughs> oh my goodness! This which is... I bought and it's autographed. Um, <laughs> it's autographed. And he had a special deal where if you bought the book, he had some extra buttons, and I saw that and I had to capitalize.
1: So yeah, it's autographed
2: for me, Steven. So wow.
1: I, I have to say, between your wife, my wife, and Adam's wife, they let us get away with a lot of crazy stuff to have in our house. <laughs>
2: yeah, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got a lot of, fan of Corman Fantastic Four stuff. So, But yeah, to that point, it was very <laughs> odd that, that he was promoting it so much. And, uh, and
0: all of a sudden not. That movie was made just so that somebody wouldn't lose the rights to make the real movie later. they had an
2: option on the yeah, property
0: yeah he would have lost his option if he didn't begin principal photography by, by a, a certain, certain date. date so for a budget of like a dollar 98 he did that movie mm. which was really pathetic mm. because the people who did the movie mm. didn't know that it was never intended to be shown right they acted and directed right. and photographed their hearts out right they did the best they could you know mm.
2: This was actually
0: supposed to premiere.
2: There was a premiere date set at the Mall of America. Yeah. On January 19th, 1994. So that was happening. The cast was going out. They were promoting it on their own dime. They were signing headshots. And then, like I said, trailers came out. There, there's a 35 millimeter trailer. I never saw it in theaters. I don't, know, I don't know anyone who ever saw it in theaters. I never
1: saw it in theaters either. If
2: you're listening and you saw it in theaters, please tell The Wizard Podcast because I want to know. But what did happen was there were trailers that were released on New Horizons uh, videos, New Horizons being Roger Corman's video label. Right. And that's, so this leads to the next question. How did you first hear about the Fantastic Four movie, Michael? From you, actually. <laughs> <laughs>
1: From you. That's
2: That That I, can't be true.
1: I, I, I mean, actually, you know what? So I had seen pictures of it online or like, snippets of different cheesy things like there was a youtube video i saw a few years ago that had like this the the, the cheesy justice league kind of like thing that were people wearing the Justice League costumes and yes. they had like other snippets of of ill-fated superhero movies and there's like a blink if you miss it blip of an image of the fantastic four in their costume and i was like what is that and beyond that i never really dove too deep to look into it until doing this podcast and you and adam talking about this movie at nauseam that i'm just like okay i gotta find this thing and then a former professor of mine from undergrad posted the daily motion link on his facebook account and i started watching it for about 10 minutes then stopped I I didn't stop because I didn't like it. I just stopped because life got in the way. And then we started talking about it. You're like, we got to do this podcast. And then it took me the better part of like six weeks to get through the whole movie. But I finally watched the whole thing. Now, how did you hear about it?
2: So I've told the story in the podcast before, but I'll tell it again. I was in seventh grade. I was waiting to get in one day. And a kid in my school, this kid James... He goes, oh yeah, my brother rented a movie last night and uh, the Fantastic Four trailer was on it. And I, again, <laughs> it at this point, I was reading the Fantastic Four comics. I had the toys from Toy Biz, which are right behind me. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And he goes, yeah, there's like a F- Fantastic Four movie. And I'm like, what, what movie is this, is, this, is this trailer on? And he goes, I don't know. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, you have to find out for me. You have to find out what, what movie he rented so I can rent it and, and see this trailer. And like I said, it, uh, in the previous podcast, it took weeks of me bugging him in the hallway to finally get him to tell me what it was. And at one point he got so pissed at me that he told me it was on a movie called Sliver, the Sharon Stone erotic yes. thriller. And I, I went to the video store as a 12 year old and rented Sliver from a female <laughs> clerk. And I was so embarrassed. Yeah, you
1: look 18 kid, you look 17.
2: Like, can, I, can I have Sliver? I'm just trying to watch the Fantastic Four trailer. I popped it in and it wasn't on it. It's and was, not. <laughs> and so finally, again, I was like, dude, I read it, Sliver. It's not on there. Just what do you like? Tell me one thing you remember about the movie your brother was watching. And he goes, uh, there was a dinosaur in it. And so I'm thinking, I'm like, is it this movie, Carnosaur? Like this <laughs> low budget, nothing movie? He goes, yeah, I think that's right. How did you even know about Carnosaur at 12 years old? I was just a movie kid. I just like knew every dumb movie that came out. I knew it wasn't Jurassic Park. Yeah. Cause that hadn't come out on video yet. And plus like every kid owned Jurassic Park. So, yeah, so you would have true. seen it. Yeah. That's so I go to the video so store weird. and I rent Carnosaur, and I wore out that, like, that trailer, broke the tape on it basically. Cause I was rewinding it and rewatching it over and over and over again. I rented it multiple times just to watch the trailer. I was going to say, because
1: a, a rental usually was only like a, a weekend or like two days tops.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, I had it for a couple days. I'd watch the trailer over and over and over again. And to this day, I like that trailer just gets me. It, it's, it's one of my favorite movie trailers ever.
1: Was it an indie it, video store or was it like a blockbuster?
2: I got it from a video store called Broadway Video in okay. Backpage, New York. So it was an indie video store, but... I, have a, I now have Carnosaur in my collection, the VHS. Just for the, just for the trailer? Just for the trailer, because the movie Carnosaur is not very good. I just no, watched it, it today before we did this. Not why, a good movie. Why would you watch that movie? It's so
1: bad. It's so well, bad. I was
2: doing work. It was on in the
1: background. You yeah, the yeah, yeah. yeah. Sure it was. Yeah. Uh, That's your reasoning. <laughs> the, the trailer is actually on YouTube, and we'll post that to our social as well, so you can yes.
2: watch it and you know what i just in doing research for this i found out something i never knew before Mm -hmm. it's like pretty public knowledge that this trailer is on carnosaur my friend john Tarani goes to me yeah it's also in a movie called the skateboard kid and so i found it the skateboard kid is a movie is a movie where a kid gets a skateboard that's voiced by dom deluise i swear to god this is a real movie oh boy deluise is the voice of a skateboard Oh, okay. So obviously I'm going to order that on VHS as soon as I can. But obviously. I did confirm that it is on there. So if you rent either the Skateboard Kid or Carnosaur from your local Blockbuster tonight, you can watch
1: the Fantastic Four trailer. But anyway... If, yeah. if, if you're wondering how Steven watches all these VHSs, he has the classic T, uh, CRT TV with built-in VCR, which yeah. was a classic if you were like if you were a 12 or 13 year old kid in the 90s and you got one of those for the holidays you were like yes i have it all (laughs) i remember (laughs) 13 inches of it
2: My my brother and I are a year apart and our sister is 10 years younger than us. And so my parents bought a TV for her, like mm. for her bedroom. And my brother and I would constantly just steal it and put it in our bedroom and watch
1: <laughs> my, my Seinfeld. Sister
2: it's, my sister has this like white
1: CRT TV with the
2: VCR <laughs> built into it. And I used exact, to borrow it all the time. Exact same one. Exact <laughs> same one. You have to like lug it down the hallway. <laughs> yes, and
1: it had handles on the top to carry yep. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Recently,
2: my parents were getting rid of one, and or recently it was like seven years ago, (laughs) and they're like, Do you want this? And I said, Yes, Yes, I do,
1: obviously. Yeah, and
2: how could I I not? Where where are we gonna put this? I'm like, Anna, don't worry about it, (laughs) I'll find a place for it. (laughs) Yeah, so don't you worry. (laughs) So basically, that was how I heard about it, and then I think a week or two after I saw the trailer, I picked up Wizard Magazine and they said the movie was being ash-canned, which meant it was disappearing. I would never see it.
1: Yeah. And, and yeah, and that whole thing is really interesting. So in the documentary, they basically said that, I don't know if it was 20th Century Fox or if it was Marvel or whomever, but they basically came into the, the post house and just took everything, all the negatives, anything with this film was just scooped up in like the middle of the night and just, Gone the next day.
2: Yep. Yeah, and so in in the film threat magazine, they do mention that Steven Spielberg and Amblin were interested in just buying it and shelving it, but eventually it went to Avi Arad, who I guess at the time was a 20th Century Fox, and they yeah. bought the rights. Christopher Columbus was coming off Home Alone mm. or Chris Columbus.
1: Yeah, I, I did the same thing at the end of that I called him Christopher Columbus too. I'm like, it's, 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 I'm thinking of the guy who brought smallpox. Was that Christopher or? No? <laughs> yes.
2: Uh, the director of home alone so you know chris columbus was riding high he had home alone biggest comedy hit of all time and yeah. fox knew he was a comic book fan he wanted to do the movie they bought the rights for him yeah uh and that was his gift and he's since yet to make the movie yeah seriously but, yeah so i heard about uh that the fact that it was not coming out in the pages of wizard wow and my
1: seventh grade heart was broken crushed obliterated and And they said that they burned all the film and, you know, they even say this in the documentary, the director's like, you don't burn film. Like nobody would do that because film is, is like art, it's history. It's, it's like a painting, no matter good, bad or indifferent, you know, you think of it like this, you know, Indiana Jones, you know, Raiders of the Lost Ark. There is a vault somewhere that has every, can a film ever made at some point you know
2: yeah i mean it's it's again one of those rumors because again i i'm one of those people i've googled fantastic for the movie uh, maybe a million times since the invention of the internet really i i look it up constantly and i'm always looking for information if they're ever going to release it at some point shout factory posted that they had tried to get it and they said it was burned and just gone Hmm. um and so, yeah, I mean, I think what makes this movie so legendary is what we're going to talk about next, okay. that it was basically canned. We were told it was never going to be released. Yeah. And then someone, somehow, and they talk about this in the documentary, got out a copy into the world. Yeah. And through the bootleg market, this VHS started to spread. And, I, and so... I was reading a magazine called hero illustrated one day, which was kind of the crack magazine, to the wizard, basically. <laughs> yeah. The Wizard's mad magazine. It yeah. was, the, it was the lesser wizard. I still liked it. And a guy had reviewed it. He had seen it one of the staff writers. And so that's when I knew it was out there in the world. And it became my like life's obsession to find <laughs> a copy of fantastic for the movie. And I was annoying the hell out of, how, how old were you then? Like 15? Uh, no, I was, I was like 13. Really? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know how when your parents would, would say, oh, what do you want for Christmas this year? Give me a list.
1: I want everything Fantastic <laughs> Four related. So, five of the them,
2: negatives. <laughs> I would give them a list. You know, they'd say you could spend 100 bucks or whatever it was. And I'd give them a list and I'd say, listen, at the bottom of the list, it would say, if you can find Fantastic Four the movie, which is 19 99 at conventions, that's all you need to buy me. <laughs> just forget about all the other stuff i don't need a whatever i don't need a, a, new, a new jersey devils uh, hockey jersey i don't need the royal rumble game for sega genesis Are you a just, devil's fan I, it was you know it was the 90s you just wore <laughs> hockey jerseys yeah i yeah i i had a florida panthers jersey <laughs> yeah exactly why i don't know <laughs> I, had <a> Cana- <laughs> I had a canadian jersey because it was on sale like, uh, <laughs> models or whatever it was yeah, like 1999 yeah. Yeah, and then people would be like, You're not a Canadians fan. I'm like, it was 20 bucks. What do
1: you want from me? <laughs> yeah. we're, we're it's we're... so true. It's right? so... <laughs> These are the things we did. Yeah. I had I had that. I think I had a Tampa Bay Lightning jersey too. <laughs> so, you know, so yeah, why? so I,
2: I would be calling comic book stores on Long Island, going through the yellow pages, calling up the F Fantastic Four, the F Fantastic Four. <laughs> and then finally one day, I was it was my cousin's birthday. My uncle was driving us around comic book stores in Queens. We were going to see Star Trek Generations in theaters. So I was 13. And I stop into a comic book store and I go, do you have the Fantastic Four movie on VHS? And he goes, no, but I've seen it. And this is the first human being I'd met who'd seen it. And it was a surly Queens guy. And I go, oh my God, I'm dying to see it. he goes, no, you're not. And I'm like, yes, I am. He goes, it's terrible. And I'm like, well, I really want to see it. And he goes there's a scene where uh, Johnny Storm sneezes and, and he sneezes out of fire and that's how he knows he's the human torch.
3: And, so, and
1: you know what? Not bad. Believe not it or bad. not. It's, it's not bad. It actually, it, it, it really made a lot of sense. Yeah. <laughs> it was like, oh, they didn't know anything was wrong until he sneezed. That's how they figured <laughs> it I was like, Oh, That's pretty clever. Yeah. I didn't so, hate it at all. I thought I liked it. <laughs> so that guy tells
2: me, he's like, hey, there's a convention in New York next week. If you go to that, they'll have it there. And so I I went home and begged my dad. I'm like, please just take me to this convention. He did not want to go into the city on his day off. You know, typical Long Island commuter. Yeah, uh, I'm not going into the city. And so I did not get my copy. It took me years to get a copy. Really? Years. Wow. Many, many years before I finally saw it. Um,
1: So interesting.
2: Yeah. And if you want me to tell that story, I can tell that story
1: too. Eh, we'll get to it. We'll go okay. down. The, we we got we got time. We got, we're going <laughs> down down the rabbit hole, if you will. This I, I
2: did. I did. Yeah, I went on a little
1: rabbit hole.
3: From the pages of the world's greatest comic book adventure. Four heroes on a daring mission in space. But something went wrong. Genetically transformed, they become the most powerful superheroes of all time. of evil are out to destroy their cosmic power. Find them! And to survive, they must utilize all their strength (laughs) to put an end to their arch-nemesis. Doom? It's clobbering time! the fantastic four
1: thank you for listening to part one of this fantastic friday edition of wizards the podcast guide to comics Next week, we're going to continue and dive deeper into the Roger Corman Fantastic Four film. As always, I want to thank Stephen Cipelas for joining me on this amazing adventure that we've embarked on. And until next time, don't forget to keep your books bagged and boarded. See you next time.
0: been a presentation of the Retro Network.